Good morning, St. Paul's. Uh, that clip that we just listened to is from a recent episode of NPR's This American Life. I hope you appreciated it. Uh, I was uh, listening to it when I was doing Christmas shopping a few weeks ago. And uh, when I got to the end, I got this big lump in my throat and I teared up because I was so, so moved by it. And when uh, I realized that, oh, we're, we're uh, coming up on Martin Luther King Day, I just thought it'd be fun to share that. Um, I think it's a good way, a fitting way to start uh, this morning's message. Of course, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day, and that is a holiday, as we all know, in memory of a man who professed faith in Christ and who ended up losing his life uh, because of his conviction that people should be treated the same regardless of what they look like, um, as the man in that clip put it. Now, I have to confess, as I was trying to prepare this message this week, I had such a difficult time because there's so much that could be said. Um, I feel a little bit like if I were to describe the state of my brain this week, you know, it's kind of like a funnel and marbles go in that funnel and marbles are ideas, right? So normally if I'm preparing a message and things are going okay, some marbles go in the funnel and they organize themselves and they come through the funnel. But with this one, it was just like a whole, uh, you know, ton of marbles got dumped in at once into this funnel and then it just got all stopped up and I was like, I have no idea what to say, you know, I can't, I, I don't know what I was thinking when I tried to take this on. Um, so I, I say that in order to acknowledge from the start of this message that what I'm about to say is going to be inadequate. That's kind of a poor sell to start off with, but I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, it is going to be inadequate. When I finish, there's going to be much, much more that could be said. Um, if you attend small groups, hopefully you'll have some opportunity to talk more uh, in those. Um, but we've got to start somewhere, right? We've got to at least try to start somewhere. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, talking about this issue of race and the gospel. But before we do, I feel the need to pray, so let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you so much for this morning, and we thank you um, for the chance to talk about a difficult issue. Uh, I pray, God, that if uh, nothing else at the end of uh, this message, that we all feel a bit more aware and... Um, I, uh, I pray that you would help us just to be sensitive, to receive whatever it is that you want to show us, whatever it is that you want to teach us, God. Um, we give you thanks, Lord. Uh, we ask for your Holy Spirit's leading and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted to start with a second acknowledgement, uh, which is that this church is, uh, for the most part, a white church, right? Um, I'm not saying that that's a core part of our identity as a church, uh, but it's just a statement of fact. Most of the people who are here uh, are white. Now, if you are not white, you are just as much a part of this church as anybody else. Um, I want to make that very clear. You know, my hope and prayer is that anybody who comes here would feel like this is a very welcoming place. And I would love for St. Paul's to become more multi-ethnic. I think that would be great. Um, but it is a reality that at this point, the main demographic here is that most, most of people are white. Um, and so this message that I'm about to give is going to be directed primarily towards the white audience. Okay? Um, I don't want anybody here to feel excluded by that, but I, I just think that there are things that those of us who are white should know about this whole issue of racism. 
Um, and since the majority of us are white, that's what I'm going to be focusing on as I'm, as I'm speaking this morning. So just want to acknowledge that. So I wanted to start with a simple statement. <laughs> well, as Caleb was working on that, I can just say the statement, um, which is racism is a problem and we as the church need to talk about it. Now, as you hear those words, I'd like you to take note of any feelings that happen inside of you when you hear them. I think it's important for us to be attentive to what we feel. So I'll say those words again. Racism is a problem, and we as the church need to talk about it. So what's that do in you? For some of us, it produces kind of a good feeling. Like, we think, yeah, no, I agree with that, and I want to see the situation get better, and so I'm glad that it's being brought up and that we're talking about it. Uh, for others of us, and I'm not pointing any fingers, I'm just saying for some of us, it might produce kind of an internal eye roll. Oh, boy, here we go. Um, something like, you know, it, okay, so this internal eye roll, it's not because we think that racism is, a, is, is an okay thing, um, but it's because we might be thinking, mm, people are making a bigger deal out of this issue than they should. Um, racism is largely a thing of America's past, so bringing it up a lot only helps to create a problem uh, rather than solve a problem. When you start talking about racism a lot, then people start seeing racism behind every bush, you know, even when there's no racism there. Um, you even have people who seem to be making their living off of claiming that racism is behind every bush. Things would be better if we just stopped making such a big deal about it. If we just stopped talking about it, maybe it would go away. Now, I don't know if your reaction falls more in the first camp or in the second camp or somewhere in between, but I would like to be transparent about myself. So for a significant period of time in my life, if I'm honest, I would say I fell more in the second camp. Um, now, at this point in my life, my perspective has changed. Uh, but there was a period of time where I felt like people who talked about racism in America today were mostly exaggerating the problem. And I, I thought that their emphasis on the issue was contributing more to the problem than it was actually helping to solve it. And I might not have voiced that opinion out loud, but internally it was in me. Uh, and I've come to realize that that opinion is actually quite common uh, among white people and including many white people in the church. Now, like I said, my, my perspective has shifted uh, some from that opinion, quite a bit from that opinion. And that's not to say that it's shifted to a point where I think every time somebody accuses somebody of racism, uh, that the accusation is fair. It's uh, not to say that I'm saying that most people uh, who are white are hostile towards minorities. Uh, I'm not saying that everyone who has uh, fought against racism has necessarily done it in a helpful way. I'm not saying any of those things. Um, but all that said, what I'm saying is I am convinced that racism is an ongoing problem in our society. Um, and I think it's very important for us as the church, and especially those of us who are in primarily white churches, to be aware of that problem, to know about it, to be educated about it. Um, and that, like I said in the prayer, is my goal this morning, that we can become more aware. But before we do that, I'd like to bring some scripture in. Uh, I'd like us to look at some pa passages that help us to see how big of a deal this issue is to God. Because I believe it is a very important issue to God. Uh, one passage that shows this very clearly is James 2, verses 8 through 9. 
And we're going to be jumping around a little bit in the scriptures, so you feel free to follow along, but I will have them up there, and we're going to be moving pretty quick. So uh, James 2, 8 through 9, it says, If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, that word that gets translated as favoritism is a very interesting word. It's a word that in the Greek has a whole bunch of syllables, uh, which it is uh, prosopolemteo. Prosopolemteo. And it's a combination of a couple things. And if you translate it very, very literally from the Greek, what it means is to receive someone according to their face. To receive someone according to their face. So, in other words, uh, it means to accept someone based on something about their external appearance. So, what James is talking about here, what he's speaking out against, is the problem that's at the root of racism, right? The problem of treating people differently because of the way they look. Now, prosopolempteo uh, has a broader meaning than just racism uh, because it can refer to treating people differently because of the way that they're dressed or because you might find them more physically attractive or something like that. But racism is definitely a form of prosopolempteo. And so it would not be too much of a stretch to rephrase verse 9 as, but if you are racist, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And what I want us to notice here is the way that James is connecting racism uh, as a direct violation of what Jesus said is the second greatest commandment. You probably remember when Jesus was asked, what, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. And so racism is a clear violation of the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor. Now, if we wanted more evidence from Scripture that this issue is important to God, there's a ton of places we could go. Um, we could spend all day looking stuff up. We could go to the many passages that emphasize the importance of treating people with love and respect. We could go to the Old Testament prophets who advocated for justice and stood up for the needs of the poor and oppressed. Uh, we could go to a lot of places, but what I want to focus on specifically are the places that, that show that the church, the community that we are all a part of, is supposed to be a revolutionary community where the things that typically divide humanity, like race, no longer do. And one of the best passages that demonstrates this is the one that Chase read for our invocation this morning and the one that was on the screen over there, which is uh, Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28. It says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, for the audience that Paul was writing to, these categories, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, these were the main categories of division and hierarchy in society during that time. So if Paul had been writing to America, say, during the days of the Jim Crow laws, he might have written this a little bit differently. He might have said there is neither black nor white instead of Jew nor Greek. And I want to be clear, the point that Paul is making is not that these categories just cease to exist uh, once we become a Christian. You know, if you become a Christian and you're male, you're still male after you become a Christian. If you're female, you're still female. If you're black, you're still black. If you're white, you're still white. Um, but the point Paul is making is that in the church, the categories 
of identity that normally divide us should no longer divide us. And if you look at the grand narrative of scripture, the story from beginning to end, there are some beautiful, beautiful ways that this is expressed, this fact that the church is supposed to be a place where the normal categories of division no longer divide us. So let me give a really neat example, an example that I think is really neat. There we go. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll make it as seamless as possible. Okay, in the first book of the Bible, uh, there's this very strange, weird story called the Tower of Babel. And it's in Genesis 11. We don't have time to go there and look at all the details. If you want to check it out later, I encourage you to do it. But it describes a time when all of humanity is gathered in one primary area of the planet, and they're all speaking the same language. And God had commanded humanity, you might remember this from all the way back in the Adam and Eve story, he had commanded humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay? But humanity was resisting that command. Uh, instead of spreading out over the whole earth, they were all bunched together in this one place trying to build this big tower. And so God does something dramatic to push humanity along. God makes it so that the people, miraculously, are now speaking different languages, speaking in different tongues. And because they can't understand each other, uh, they end up grouping with the people that they can understand and then going off and starting cities and spreading out just as the Lord wanted them to. So God gives humanity a push. It's a very interesting, strange story. Okay? Now, the reason I bring up that story is because when the church gets started, that moment is presented as a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. In uh, the moment that I'm talking about is the moment when God sends the Holy Spirit on the church for the first time at Pentecost. Uh, this is from Acts 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So you notice that this is similar. Before, the Lord sent uh, tongues to the people, and they spoke in other tongues, and they were all confused. They, they couldn't understand each other. Now, once again, the Lord is sending tongues to people. But this, this time, the results are a little different. Uh, now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews, uh, Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they said, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? So do you see how this is the reverse of what happened at the Tower of Babel? In the Tower of Babel story, everyone goes from being able to understand each other to not being able to understand each other. And in this story, it's the reverse. And both involve this miraculous intervention of God involving language. 
And what God seems to be saying in a dramatic way on Pentecost, as he starts this church, his church through the outpouring of the Spirit, is that his church is supposed to undo this division that started at Babel, this cultural and ethnic division. Through Jesus, God is creating a community that is united even as it is diverse. Uh, those of us in the church may be from different cultures, we may speak different languages, but through the Holy Spirit now, we can be unified. So God's heart for the church is that we would be a unified community of diversity. Um, and the way I would put it is we're supposed to be a community of people who would not normally understand each other, but because of the Holy Spirit, now we do. So quick recap based on the scriptures we've looked at so far. The church is supposed to be a revolutionary community where, one, we don't receive or reject people according to their face, no favoritism. Two, the categories of identity that normally divide us no longer do. And three, people who wouldn't normally understand each other now do. So this raises the question, how are we doing? Is the church a revolutionary community? Well, to give a short answer, I think we have a lot to celebrate. Um, this isn't supposed to be an entirely negative message here. Uh, when you look at the church worldwide, there are many examples of those three things happening, for sure. And it's remarkable that the gospel started in one corner of the world, and now it's gone out through the whole place, you know? You've got believers in, in, in all over the world, speaking all kinds of different languages, and we all share these core, core beliefs and values. So, to a certain extent, yes, this is true. But I think we do still have a lot of work to do in this area. I think there's a lot of room for growth. Many people in the church still receive or don't receive people according to exter external appearance. Uh, many people in the church are still divided from each other by the categories of identity that normally divide us. And many people who wouldn't normally understand each other still don't. One book that really, really helped me uh, to uh, kind of be, have my eyes open to this whole issue, and I would, I would highly recommend it to anyone, is this book that I was assigned in seminary called Divided by Faith, uh, The Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America. Uh, it's by two Christian researchers, uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Uh, and this book was just really, really eye-opening for me. Um, it was written in 2000, so it's a little old now, but I think the main points of their research would still stand, and I'm going to talk about those a little bit in a moment. But one of the things that the book points out is that blacks and whites in the American church uh, tend to stay in different circles. And we tend to have very different perceptions of the race issue. So that's a starting point. All the research that they did confirms this, okay? And I want to talk about that a little bit because I think that this is something that's important for us to be aware of. Now, to set up what Emerson and Smith researched, uh, I want to establish a point, which is that research has shown uh, for many decades now that there is a very large economic gap in America between blacks and whites. Uh, this was true 16 years ago when Divided by Faith was written, and it's still true now. So, for example, here are some uh, stats from Pew Research, recent stats. Uh, in 2014, the median household income for whites was... $71,300. Uh, the median household income for blacks was $43,300. So pretty, pretty significant difference, right? Now, this difference becomes even more dramatic 
when we're looking at median household wealth. So income is the measure of how much money, obviously, you have coming in every year, right? Wealth is, is a more interesting and um, uh, revealing uh, indicator of your situation, because wealth is all of your assets minus your debt. So the value of your house, your car, your retirement, all that stuff, minus your debt. And in 2013, the median household wealth for whites was $144,200. The median household wealth for blacks was $11,200. That is a huge gap. It's a tremendous difference. Now, what Emerson and Smith did in their study was they, they conducted research on if you ask white people in the church and black people in the church this question, why do you think there's this huge economic gap between white and black people in America? They found that we tend to give very different answers. Um, now, keep in mind, the people that they were talking to were evangelicals, okay? So these were people that identified as Christians and identified as Christians within a particular stream of Christianity. So um, I know that term evangelical has a lot of political baggage right now, but basically, theologically, a church like our church, St. Paul's Church, would align with the core convictions of evangelical theology. So the people that were being interviewed, researched, both blacks and whites, were people like us, theologically speaking. Um, and yet, we gave very different answers along racial lines. So I want to talk about uh, some of their research because I think it's super interesting. So here's how the question was structured. What, what Emerson and Smith would do was they would say, here's, you know, on average, uh, blacks have less income, poor housing. There's this huge gap in terms of economics. Why do you think that is? And so they offered four possible suggestions, and all of the people who were answering were supposed to answer yes or no to each one. So the first possible suggested reason for the economic disparity is because most blacks have less inborn ability to learn. Now, it, it seems to me if you answer yes to that question, you're basically admitting to being racist, right? You're, you're saying, oh, I, I think there's some inherent flaw in blacks. Um, the research showed that 10% of the whites surveyed said yes to that, 7% of the blacks surveyed. Um, fortunately, that's pretty low number for percentage of each group, right? Um, but it's, it's still significant. There are some people who, who think that and will admit to thinking that. Um, the second possible reason suggested is because most blacks just don't have the motivation or willpower to pull themselves up out of poverty. Now, this is where a big difference reveals itself, okay? Of the whites surveyed, 62% said yes to that. That that's, that's, that's probably why. 31% of blacks, big difference, right? Uh, the third possible reason that the researchers suggested is because most blacks don't have the chance for education that it takes to rise out of poverty. Uh, here, there was also a pretty significant difference in perception between black and white evangelicals. 32% uh, of whites said yes to that, and a little over half, 54% of blacks. But here's the big one. This is where uh, the fourth possibility is where the biggest difference in perception reveals itself. They asked, 
do you think it's mainly due to discrimination? Is the economic gap mainly due to discrimination? 27% of white evangelicals said yes, 72% of blacks. Big difference. Okay. So, what does this mean? What this means, to put it simply, is that within the American church, we have a significant economic gap along racial lines, and we give significantly different explanations for that economic gap along racial lines. So in other words, I think this research reveals that we've got a ways to go when it comes to at least two of those three aspects of being a revolutionary community. Um, we, uh, we're still divided along the uh, categories of human identity that normally divide. Uh, and we still have trouble understanding each other, right? Because, I mean, when you have 72% of black evangelicals uh, saying that discrimination, they think discrimination is a main cause of this enormous economic gap, but only 27% of white evangelicals are saying that, that shows that we're looking at things radically differently, right? We're, we're having a very different experience here of the world. We're not unified on this issue. Now this raises the question, who's right, right? Uh, is discrimination a major factor in creating this economic gap? Well, unfortunately, I cannot open up scripture and say, here's the passage that proves <laughs> one way or the other, right? But I do think that there is a lot of evidence out there that discrimination is alive and well in America today. And while I'm not saying it is the only factor necessarily in contributing to that economic gap, I do think it is a very significant factor. Um, you might remember that when we were doing our series in James, I talked about a study uh, that helped to, to reveal that discrimination is a factor uh, in this economic gap. Um, it's the study that was done by Harvard sociology professor Deva Pager. She's done a lot of research on uh, the effects of race on hiring policies. And uh, what Pager discovered is that it is almost impossible for black applicants with felony convictions to get jobs. Now you might say, well, that's not really racism. They have felony convictions, you know. Well, that, that would be a fair objection, but Pager also found that white applicants with felony convictions are way more likely to be called back for a second interview. Uh, and in fact, what Pager found is that white applicants with felony convictions are just as likely to be called back as black men, as black men who have no criminal record. Uh, so the, to sum up her study, she, she sums it up by saying, being black in America today is just about the same as having a felony conviction in terms of one's chances of finding a job. Now, I'll be honest, when I first read that, I thought, I just find that really hard to believe. You know, because it's like, well, I'm not hostile toward minorities, and I don't think most of my friends are hostile toward my minorities, so how can this be? And I can't fully explain it, but as I thought about it more, I thought this really shouldn't be that unbelievable to me. Because wasn't it just 50 years ago that in America we had laws mandating segregation? You know, are we so naive as to think that when the Supreme Court called that unconstitutional, that all of a sudden the racism that that caused those laws just disappeared, you know? The human heart doesn't change quickly. 
and cultures don't change quickly. Um, you know, those of us who are Christians who have a belief in, in the fallen nature of humanity and sin, you know, we, we shouldn't be surprised that, that this sort of thing would still be going on. Now, I want to be very careful not to be misunderstood, okay? Uh, I'm not trying to accuse any of, us, any of us here of being racist, okay? Uh, I'm not trying to accuse any of us of having hostility toward minority groups. You know, that is not what I'm trying to do. All I'm trying to do is say, let's be aware. Let's know what's going on. Um, we need to be aware that there's a lot of research out there, um, credible research that supports the idea that discrimination is still a real thing that happens, it happens a lot. And we also need to be aware that our black brothers and sisters, and our brothers and sisters of, of different ethnicities as well, in the church, believe that discrimination is the main cause of this economic gap. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware that people within our family, the family of the church, feel like discrimination is a controlling force in their lives. Because unless we're aware, we won't be able to act in a helpful way. We've got to know these things. And so, if there's one thing that you hear from this message this morning, let it be this. If you are a white person, please be willing to listen. That's it. Please be willing to listen. Before you judge whether discrimination is actually taking place, take the time to listen. Uh, when people speak, hear them out. I mean, if we're going to truly love our neighbors, right, that starts with being willing to listen. No one feels loved if they don't feel listened to, if they don't feel heard. I said that my thinking on this, sub this subject had shifted. Well, several factors played a role in that shift, but one of the big biggest factors of all was a class that I took in seminary when I was at Gordon-Conwell called Race and Reconciliation. Uh, and in that class, all of us would sit in this big rectangle, uh, this very diverse group of Gordon-Conwell students, and the professor would ask questions to get everybody sharing about their experiences. And what really surprised me as I went through that class was the depth of emotion that would come out of many of the minority students as they were sharing their experiences. Um, you know, I saw raw anger, I saw tears shed, um, and I was struck by the fact that I had passed many of these people in the halls and said hello and worked on group projects with them, and I was just completely oblivious to the fact that they were carrying any of this pain. I had no idea. I just didn't, didn't know. Didn't know until I listened, you know, and until I was in a forum where I had an opportunity to listen. And so it's really hard to think of racism as something that's in the past when you witness that pain in front of you firsthand. So my encouragement is this. If the church is going to become a revolutionary community, the revolutionary community that God intends it to be, we have to love our neighbors by listening to them. We have to hear them out, even if we disagree, even if we get to the end of listening and still think the problem's being misdiagnosed, we have to listen, we have to have empathy, we have to pay attention. Now, I realize that you might not have your own race and reconciliation class to go to, like I did, uh, but if you're looking for a way to start listening, I have two recommendations this morning. Uh, the first one is that Divided by Faith book, again, Highly recommend it if you're interested in the subject and if you're not interested in, in the subject. Uh, 
And the other thing is, uh, there was a recent episode of that um, radio show, This American Life, the same one that we listened to a, a clip from uh, at the start of the sermon. Uh, it was called The Problem We All Live With. Um, if you Google that, This American Life, The Problem We All Live With, you'll be able to listen to it, you'll be able to hear it for free. And it's uh, all about um, trying to address the problem of minority students not uh, performing as well in school as, as white students. And it, it tells the story of this uh, one girl trying to attend a school that will actually uh, make it possible for her to get a good education and the struggle that she goes through. It's, it's very, very interesting. I really encourage you, if you want to start listening, uh, to take the time to listen to that. So. Like I said at the start, uh, this sermon is inadequate. There's so much more that could be said. Uh, but my hope is that we can come away today with a renewed sense, one, that God cares about this issue, so we should too, right? And two, that if we want to overcome the racial division in the church and in the world, we just have to start by paying attention and listening to each other well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that uh, your heart is for the whole world to know you um, and for us in the church to be uh, united, a united community of diversity, Lord. And I pray that wherever there are um, uh, things that put up walls between us and uh, people who are, who are different from us, God, uh, I pray that those walls will be broken down. Uh, I pray for unity in your church. And I pray for that unity to be a blessing uh, to the world, Lord. Uh, I pray that the normal categories of division would not divide us, Lord. Um, I thank you uh, for uh, your, your grace to us, God. Uh, but I, I, I do pray, Lord, that you would just give us eyes to be able to see what's going on in the world and wisdom to be able to handle it, Lord, uh, and to respond to it well. Uh, we pray uh, that this church would be a place where all, all people would be able to come and experience your presence uh, and feel uh, like they are being welcomed into a, a relationship with you and a relationship with this community. In Jesus' name, amen.